Welcome to the Future Fix. The roots of our hunting and agricultural practices go back thousands of years. That said, a lot of these practices have been modernized and often industrialized on a massive scale. And many of these modernizations are unsustainable and contribute to climate change. At the same time, our food economy is in dire need of modernization. The way we produce, distribute, consume, and then discard our food leaves many people without. While we waste an average 2.2 million pounds of food in Canada each year. In some ways, a return to the past and some of the more sustainable traditional food practices would do a world of good, while modernizing our food economy and distribution is badly needed. Thing is, we can do both. You're listening to The Future Fix Solutions for Communities Across Canada. This is part four of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode, we present community challenges and solutions and take you to places large and small from coast to coast to coast. To begin talking about how we can modernize our food economy, we're going to hear from Barbara Swartzenruber, Executive Director of Guelph's Smart Cities Office. Guelph's winning entry in Infrastructure Canada's Smart City Challenge is Our Food Future. The idea is to use data to increase food security and create a circular food economy that reduces waste. The overall initiative has three goals, and that's to increase access to healthy, nutritious food, to create new circular businesses and jobs that are really about the new economy and to find more economic and social value from, from food that is already wasted. Mm -hmm. So the problem specifically that you're trying to solve is uh, 17%. Of people, they kind of don't have what you would call yeah. food security. Yeah. So the problem that we're trying to solve is really a focusing on, you know, addressing the issues that people are facing, addressing environmental issues, and also addressing it from a business or economic angle. So one in six families in our community are food insecure. And nationwide, about 30% of the food that gets produced on a farm doesn't make it to the plate. So there's a tremendous amount of wasted food. And that always means there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, not just to reduce the waste, but to potentially create new products from the byproducts of food processing system. So for instance, the spent barley from a beer making business can be used for bread making. Right. And there are a number of those opportunities that we just haven't uncovered yet. As well, you know, there are opportunities in the agriculture space to be more environmentally friendly to use precision agriculture where you get specific data about 
your fields and where exactly fertilizer needs to be applied and where water needs to be applied. And you can be quite a bit more um, specific about using those resources. And there's a lot of work in regenerative agriculture that also uh, will have an impact on our food system. So when you talk about a circular food economy, can you kind of explain that, uh, you know, how does it start and where does it end? Yeah. So our current economy is based on a linear economic model where we take resources from the earth, we make things, products that people want, and then those products inevitably get disposed of in landfills. So that take-make-dispose model is really what drives our economy currently. And the circular economy is really about thinking about a new economic model that's based more on the natural cycles and principles of nature. So it's really about making sure that when we're taking resources, we're making them in a way that they can be safely returned back into nature or that we can prevent them or they can be reused in different ways. So it's about closing the loop and creating a circular system where we're not wasting the resources that we're we're taking from the earth because we really, we really have a boundary of a planetary boundary that uh, we're going beyond at the present moment. Yeah. Right. And in terms of data and technology uh, for this project, how, how does that come into play? How does that help create a circular economy? What we aim to do is uh, this is a project we're doing with our partners, the County of Wellington. So the surrounding uh, County around Guelph. And what we're trying to do is create a rural urban living lab where social innovators and entrepreneurs and data and technology experts can work alongside each other to try to solve those really complex food system problems. We want to attract new businesses that are in the technology space that will help us to find solutions. So for instance, there are there are better ways to distribute food because we need to reduce the amount the long distance uh, food distribution system is is adding to GHGs and impacting climate. So we can use data and technology to understand a better way from from farm to fork to landfill and uh, use that information to understand how we can address the goals of our project. And how can the people of Guelph Wellington participate in the project? So they're already participating. We we will have an extensive engagement strategy where we'll be looking for members of the community to participate on our working groups, to be part of our projects. Already people are uh, landing at our door asking how they can be involved. The entire community has really gotten behind this uh, really bold vision uh, from farmers to social innovators to, uh, you know, the the school board. So pretty much every sector in our community is around the table working with us on this project. And so uh, the goals that uh, this project sets, um, they're pretty big, uh, you know, <laughs> 50% increase in access to affordable, nutritious food, 50 new circular food business and collaboration opportunities, and 50% increase in economic revenues by reducing or transforming food waste. I was wondering if you could talk about uh, some of those economic revenues. Sure. So one of our partners, Provision Coalition, does work with food producers and manufacturers. And they work with those folks to understand how they can reduce the waste within their system, how they can create a more sustainable product. 
And already that work is showing increase in economic revenues for existing businesses, but we want to create new businesses. So one of our projects will be a harvest impact fund. So there's some money set aside so that we can support businesses that are developing that are circular in nature. And as we add more businesses, as we help businesses to become more circular, we'll see that increase in economic uh, revenue that is based on that circular system. Also, uh, we'll be working with the community to find ways that the leftovers from one process might be able to be used by other folks. And immediately then you see an increase in economic revenues. What was wasted now can become a viable product or a service. And is this project uh, kind of specific to Guelph or can it be kind of transplanted to other municipalities? The issue of food waste, the issue of food insecurity is uh, worldwide. So, you know, a billion people around the world are hungry or undernourished. And as the population increases, we're going to have even more pressure on our food systems. So what we will be doing is creating a playbook that will describe our our failures and our successes and creating a, a roadmap for other cities to follow. Okay, well, Barbara, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, thank you. In Iqaluit, many people still use traditional Inuk hunting practices to provide for their family, but with a few modern twists. Technology can make life easier in the north, but in some cases, it's essential for safe hunting when the landscape has been thrown into turmoil due to the effects of climate change. Thomas Rohner sat down with Stephen Lonsdale of the Kikiktini Inuit Association to talk about how data and tech are being harnessed in the name of food security and sovereignty in the north. Most people who are going to be listening to this interview will have never been to Nunavut or Iqaluit. So for those people, can you describe Iqaluit? I, I spent a, a number of years in the south. I was born and raised here, but when I went down for school, I ended up staying. I fell in love with the city and just everything it had to offer, so I can understand kind of say the urban point of view as well as the point of view from up here where it's it is a whole lot different where um we're a whole lot closer intertwined with the environment with the land and the animals because we like for the most part all like all communities being one we feed off the land we depend a lot on uh, the land and waters for for food it's only been one generation since we've moved it from the land into settled communities. So in that gener- in my mom's generation, she would have traveled with the seasons uh, to different areas, completely living off the land. So depending on the time of year, it would either be a fishing camp, then moving into different areas for, say, caribou, And then again, it's always moving with the changes of the animals, moving with the changes of the environment. So it was a a semi-nomadic lifestyle of completely living off the land. And so within that one generation, 
we're now in settled communities working, you know, in the wage economy, but that life still exists. And so it's completely ingrained in us. It's it's so hard to explain the drastic changes that Inuit society has gone through. As isolated as we are, it is still very important to be able to hunt and gather your resources from just your surroundings. It's uh, we're, we're so isolated that it's just not feasible to just have like the, the store-bought food, which is essentially all imported. So the closer we are to food, the, the, the better it is, both for us culturally and also just financially. Looking into the future, how do you think new technologies might support Inuit hunters? The tools for hunting have changed, but the idea behind it has not. The idea of the great respect for animals is still within us. Um, Just to have the kind of utmost care in handling animals is uh, and and harvesting is is something extremely important um you know some of the rules are that animals just should be left alone unless you're you're harvesting you you harvest and you only take what you need and you give away uh, a lot of your your food you take what you need for your family and then you share with your community and that's just something the way it's always been so that act of that tradition in that hasn't changed. The tools have changed somewhat. We still have harpoons, and the science behind the harpoon is still the same as it was uh, a thousand years ago. You had your spearhead, you had your spear, and then you had your rope attached to it. And then now the same thing exists, the same technology, the same science exists behind that, that Inuit science. But it's now, you know, for the most part, like a stainless steel spear and a, uh, a, a rope, you know, that's bought, say, from the store. But when you look at the shape of it, the purpose of it, it's unchanged. And it's the same thing for, say, a kamutik, which is a, a sled. So back in the day, it was made from, say, whale bones with cross pieces that were tied together using a bearded seal uh, rope. And it was meant to travel over the ice with flexibility so that it's not rigid. Anything too rigid would break. So having these things tied tied on, like um, the sled, uh, just gave it uh, a lot of that flexibility. And even the runners on the bottom to make it slide faster on the ice and snow, like that was literally made from ice where people would take water and run it over the bottom of the uh, the skis and it would freeze and then net to, today we use um, Teflon. So it's like this plastic, uh, very slippery plastic, and you just put it on the bottom as runners. So traditional does not mean Stone Age. And so we adopt something and we put our own spin on it. We adapt it to suit our needs. And then now we're able to use it to our, its full advantage. And right now, the emerging stuff is probably things like satellite communications, uh, even looking online for uh, weather updates and ice conditions. You know, these things are forever improving. 
And we're, again, we're going to take it and put our own spin on it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about uh, ice conditions in particular, because um, I've heard very experienced Inuk hunters talk about how ice conditions are changing with climate change, with, you know, time. And it seems like almost every winter there's one tragedy involving an experienced hunter. So how might technology add to ice safety for Inuit hunters? I think something like that would be adopted immediately. And, and it, it, it's starting to now with different uh, things like the satellite imagery. There's a program in a few communities uh, called Smart Ice where uh, a piece of equipment is dragged behind the kamutik and it sends a signal into the ice and does like just a very live update of the thickness of the ice according to the path that's being taken. And so essentially it updates a, a website that can be accessed and then you see live up-to-date information on this. And again, this is just a, a, new, a new spin on kind of an old thing where for the most part, whenever hunters go out, there's constant communication about where you went, how long it took, the ice conditions that were there. It's a, we're a very oral tradition. And so these things are passed on through stories. And we tell each other these things, not just to pass time, but it's a way of constantly updating each other on the conditions around you because you need to do that. You constantly need to talk to each other if we're going to be safe out there. So this is just a new form where it's recorded now and uploaded and it's just continuing that tradition in just a different fashion where we're sharing. We're sharing this information for our benefit. And so it's something I think that people like to see and uh, if it can be available in a much wider scale, then that would be great as well. Thanks very much for your time, Stephen. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Communities are starting to take a holistic look at our entire food economy, from beginning to end and back again. In many ways, just like we used to before mass industrialization. Solid data gathering helps us produce and distribute food intelligently. It's good business, it's better for the environment, and it helps ensure that food gets to where it's needed. Food is the number one basic necessity for life. It should be a global human right. But until it is, identifying waste and ensuring food security for everyone is the fix. Thank you for listening to the Future Fix Solutions for Communities Across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Additional reporting was done by Thomas Rohner. Tune into our special French language episodes hosted by Katia Gaid, and we'll be back with part five of our series, all about data collection in public spaces. Mm-hmm.